welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast. Again, I appreciate all of you that have uh, taken the time to download and listen. appreciate the reviews that we've been getting and some of the ratings. Um, we are on our 10th episode, and you may be wondering, Troy, are you sure about that? Yes, we are on 10th, but for some reason, some dummy has a hard time keeping track of the numbers. You'll see if you go back through our archives, we have two number eights, and uh, so we, we, we skip nine. Uh, but this is our 10th episode, and again, appreciate those that are giving good feedback there. Uh, speaking of feedback, I did get uh, some feedback said, uh, with an audio concern. said my voice was much, much lower than the guest, and it was difficult to listen to. Um, I, first of all, I want to apologize for that. Uh, obviously, as we're going through this, still figuring out our processes and making sure we have everything balanced properly. Um, but as some of you may know, I do these interviews in batches. So um, I can sit down and, and in 24 hours, maybe do two or three, even four interviews. So as episode 10 that you're about to listen to, our interview with Deb, let me know if you would, please. Email me at troy at redtoolhouse.com and let me know if the audio balance is good or if it's bad uh, because this is a next batch of, of interviews that I did and, and I think I have things more tuned in there better. Uh, but if you don't mind, please give me some feedback there and let me know. I want to make this as uh, listenable as possible. I uh, don't want anything like that to obviously scare people off. We want to have good quality there. Um, well, some updates. Uh, what's going on here at Red Tool House? Well, we are uh, we have two sows that we're ready to breed. In fact, should have standing heat tomorrow morning. Uh, I was just up checking on them before dark and... and uh, Mercy, one of our uh, large sows, proven sows, she uh, she's real close to standing. She was just just not quite there yet. So I think uh, first thing in the morning we'll go out at uh, sun sun up and check her out there and see if it's going to uh, to be successful. Um, one other update that's unrelated to uh, Red Toolhouse, but something you all may run into if you're on Facebook uh, and belong to any of the Pastured Pig Facebook groups. Uh, there's a rumor, there's speculation that Facebook is going to be shutting down a lot of the uh, animal-based, farm-based websites or Facebook pages and Facebook groups uh, due to um, their stance on animals and uh, using animals for, for livestock and consuming animal flesh, that type of thing. Um, I haven't seen anything official from Facebook, uh, but there is a lot of discussion about things being shut down or being warned uh, being threatened to be closed down. So um, if you've been in some of those groups, you may see some discussion that uh, people are moving over to the MeWe social media platform. Um, I've gone over there. I'm, I'm in the Pastured Pig uh, for Meat and Profits uh, group over MeWe. Uh, not nearly as big as it is uh, on Facebook, but it is growing. Uh, and it's um, it's it's a way that we... we <clears throat> it's our understanding that we think it's going to be a little more friendly to uh, us hog raisers. So you may want to check that out and try that platform out. Well, as far as our uh, guest today on today's episode, we're speaking with Deb Jones-Schuler from Wild Plum Farm. And uh, 
Deb, Deb's one of those people that you know, I hated to stop the conversation. We could have just kept talking. She has some really good insight, some good experience. She admits she's kind of new in the game and learning, but she's, uh, she's really hit the ground running. She has a pretty good setup there and really likes some of the elements she's implemented. So she's in Washington State, just south of the Canadian border, on an old dairy farm built in 1927. Um, she has some interesting challenges with water and irrigation for her herd. She'll get into that in the discussion. Uh, they're kind of like this high elevation desert style topography with what's called shrub step, which we Easterners, I have no clue what that is. Um, but she describes that pretty well. Um, has the opportunity to process on farm, um, at least to, uh, to butcher and to scald and scrape and eviscerate. Uh, some opportunities there in, in Washington allow them to do so. Uh, feeding with fodder and some bulk apples. So just really good discussion, and I won't give any more of that away. We'll jump right in and uh, let Deb tell her story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. So glad you all decided to join us, and I'm really excited about tonight's interview. Uh, I'm meeting with Deb jones Schuler from the Wild Plum Farm, and uh, she is in... Uh, Mid-state Washington, is that correct, Deb? Uh, not quite mid-state. I'm north. I'm um, just, a, you know, as the crow flies, I'm about 20 miles from the Canadian border. Oh, okay. Much further north yeah. then. Okay. Yep. Well, welcome to the podcast. And if you don't mind, just go ahead and dive in and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Troy. Um, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, well, uh, as you said, we are in north-central Washington. We are in a, a beautiful uh, rural sparsely populated valley called the Metau Valley. Um, it has a beautiful river running through it and uh, tall mountains surrounding it. Um, we're just over the North Cascades mountain range from the Seattle um, sort of uh, western edge of Washington. Uh, so we get a lot of visitors here um, uh, from the west side and uh, so it's a tourist community but it's also an ag traditional agriculture community. Okay, so the question uh, that, that uh, jumps into my mind, and maybe in others uh, that aren't familiar necessarily with uh, Washington State, so are you in the rainy portion or the non-rainy portion of Washington State? We are in the non-rainy portion. We're on the dry um, eastern slope of the North Cascades Mountains. Uh, so um, we are more um, sort of high mountain desert climate. Um, uh, there's a lot of shrub step, um, you know, um, high mountains all around us. So we get a little bit of rain. The best part of where we live is that we have four seasons um, and uh, it's a big uh, ski um, destination in the winter months. We have um, a lot of Nordic skiing and um, a, a tiny um, downhill area, but it's mostly the Nordic skiers that walk to our area and uh, enjoy getting out of the rainy uh, west side of the state. So Nordic skiing, is that is that what we out here east call cross-country skiing? Oh, yep, same okay. thing. Yeah, okay, yep. wow. <laughs> so I, I assume then, obviously, you get enough precipitation in the winter, at least, to, to justify having a good snow base for Nordic skiing and, uh, and a decent a decent amount of rainfall um, to, to keep you from being completely desert, I assume. Um, yes, we, um, you know... Yes and no. We're currently in a declared state of drought. Um, mm. We had very low snowpack last year, and um, 
you know, we're very reliant on uh, water rights, irrigation systems, um, and uh, just keep our fingers crossed every year that uh, we do get enough snow in the mountains and it slowly makes its way down the valley. But um, we've also been, the, um, we've been hit very hard with wildfires the last five or six years that have been pretty devastating to our community. No. Um, uh, but yeah, for the most part, it's um, lovely and we get just enough moisture to make it uh, habitable. <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, obviously, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's that reminds me, or that makes me think of an interesting question. So, how much is uh, water for your pigs? How how much of a, is that a challenge of your your daily farming practice? Uh, it it's um it's a pretty big challenge, and it's actually also a very critical part of my farming practice to have those water rights. So we um, are on an irrigation district, and our water comes out of a high mountain lake. And typically we have our water um, irrigation system is turned on from um, May 1st until October 1st. This year it will probably be turned off August 1st. Hmm. And so that, um, that will affect my feed costs. It will affect how I plan for my fall um, and heading into the winter with my herd of pigs. Wow. So, so are you in one of those areas where um, you're regulated as far as rain catchment and those type of things go? We're not, um, no, we are not. We haven't gotten to that point, although uh, many of us have been exploring um, conservation practices over the last decade. And um, uh, one of the things I've been investigating and um, making changes to my farm around are um, permaculture practices. So mm -hmm. trying to um, be you know, aware of how I can plant and utilize the natural contours of my land to better um, uh, capture the moisture that we do have, uh, planting certain crops so that you know I'm I'm being more efficient with what nature's providing and um, having sort of a contingency plan so that if water does get turned off or we have a wildfire that we're not completely um, devastated by that. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, and again, I, I, I know we're kind of getting ahead of, uh, of, we'll have to back up here and do a little bit more of the intro, but I really appreciate okay. this conversation as far as, uh, so do you have opportunities with wells? Is, is it one of those situations in, in your area of the state that uh, a well becomes cost prohibitive? Um, a well would be cost prohibitive if it were allowed, but, oh, wow. um, we currently have, um, a closure of any new wells in our valley so uh, we have a domestic well and we can pull you know a certain amount out of that every day but that isn't nearly enough to irrigate the acreage that I have uh, so um, we just rely on our irrigation rights and keep our fingers crossed that we can hang on until the fall weather's change and things cool off and the rains come back Wow, that that fascinates me. Where we are in uh, in central West Virginia, of course, where you consider the Mid Atlantic region, we, we get more rain than we know what to do with. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think just uh, I think we got an inch of rain just here in the last hour. Uh, it's, yeah. It's been uh, been intense, but uh, yeah, the things uh, things we take for granted that you all covet, and I'm sure there's things that you all take for granted that we covet. But uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah. 
Okay, well, if we could, uh, I'm sure our, our listeners would love me to back up and actually get some more details about your setup, and, and sure. you've given us a little intro about yourself, but tell us about your farm, uh, maybe the size, uh, kind of what you're doing there. Are you, are you just pigs? Do you have some other things going on? Are you going it alone? Just give us some details there, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. So uh, we've been on our, our farm for 20, a little over 20 years. Um, it's an original homestead that was built in uh, 1929, which I realized for folks on the East Coast is um, not very old at all. But for the but for the for the West Coast, that's a pretty old place. Um, yeah. So it was built in 1929 as a dairy farm originally, um, and uh, the barn that we have the original dairy barn on the farm was built for 90 head of cows. Um, and then it's gone through different iterations over the years. Uh, it was an alfalfa farm. It was a uh, beef cattle ranch for a while. And when we bought it, it was sort of on its last legs and it had been neglected for a while. Um, uh, we didn't do much besides have a couple saddle horses for the first decade and a half that we lived here. We all had jobs off farm to pay for the farm. <laughs> um, but um, just in the last, six years we've taken to farming I've taken to farming full time the rest of our crew is still working off farm but uh, so we have 40 acres all together 20 of those are irrigated pasture and 20 are a steep hillside of shrub step so lots of sagebrush and bitterroot and some native grasses um, and uh, we also run horses on our property we have a rescue donkey from Texas hmm. Um, we raise laying hens and meat birds, and then uh, we also um, take in folks, uh, retired chickens, those folks who can't put their hen in the stew pot, bring their chickens to us, and they're um, a main part of our pastured pig pest control program. All right, very good. Yeah, yeah so we, um, at any given time, we might have 30 to 50 chickens running around with the pigs. Um, and uh, so that's always fun to see them carrying on. Great. Uh, yeah. So um, so that's our farm. I'm the primary pigger around here. Um, my family pitches in when I holler at them or when they're home from their day jobs. We um, we have two extended family live on our, our property. Um, my son and his partner are in the original farmhouse. And my husband, my daughter, and I live in a home we built about 20 years ago. Um, so we share the property, and everyone's very invested in keeping it a working farm. Uh, my son and daughter are the slaughter team when it comes to processing pigs. We do all of that on farm. Mm. Um, my husband runs after food for me a lot for pig feed, and then uh, my daughter-in-law is a soap maker, and she uses the lard from our pigs in her soap business. Oh, excellent! So it sounds yeah. like there's um, there's five. It sounds like five adults that are that are pitching in on on the farm. Am I am I doing the math right there? Yep. All right. Wow, that's yep. that's that's a good work crew. It is a good work crew. I'm the day to day operations person. They're all scattered to the wind most days. But when it comes time to processing to process or fix a tractor or do the heavy lifting, they uh, they'll come help me out, which is great. 
Yeah, there's a wow. There's a lot to unpack in all of that. So let's let's back up a little bit. You talked about X amount of acreage that were um, was the term scrub step. What was uh, shrub step? Okay, shrub shrub. Okay, scrub. Yep. <laughs> That's something You're completely close. different. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so shrub step. So um, again, being an East Coaster, I'm not familiar with that. Could you explain that to some of us uh, Easterners as to what that is, what that looks like? Sure. So shrub step is basically um, an arid landscape. It's not quite desert, but uh, it gets enough moisture that um, it that the landscape can support perennial grasses and some um, drought-tolerant um, small shrubbery. So, for example, that's um, sagebrush, um, a bitterroot plant, which is has very small green foliage on it. Um, and these things don't grow um, taller than maybe three or four feet. Hmm. Uh, and then there's bunch grass. And that, this time of year, is um, beautiful, tall, green grass, but it's, but it's in... Um, bunches that are probably, you know, six to eight inches in diameter, and they grow in the spring. Um, they're good forage for the, um, the deer. Um, cattle are free-ranging on a lot of shrub step in our um, region. Uh, and then those, so those grasses can be eaten um, down quite short, and then they'll come back um, next year. Oh, okay. Rain. Yeah. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. So, do you are you providing access to any of your your animals on that at this time? I don't run my animals on the shrub step part for two reasons. One, um, it's quite steep, um, and um, and it's quite fragile the um, shrub step. And so, um, I have kept my pigs off of it. I could run the horses on it if I needed to, but we have enough feed for them in other um, acreage on the property. So. Um, it's just native um, foliage at this point and a nice buffer from, you know, neighbors and and whatever else might come through. Right, right, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, um, another comment you made there I'd like you to discuss a little bit, if you don't mind. You were talking about your uh, retirement home for chickens, and I, yeah. I, I love that because we get that a lot, too. We have a lot of city friends that... Uh, in, in our local town, are you allowed to have six chickens? So once they pass the uh, the egg laying stage, they always give us a call and say, "Hey, Troy, Kelly, can you guys uh, take our chickens? We don't want to keep them anymore because they're not laying, and uh, the kids will be upset if we butcher them. So can we right. bring them out to your farm?" And of course, um, when we say yes, you can bring your chickens out to be retired. That kind of kind of has a different meaning, I think, than what you were describing there. But if you don't mind, describe uh, describe what you've got going on there. Um, well, so I, um, I, I've always had a hard time penning up animals for very long periods of time. <laughs> so if you ask my family, it's a bit of a problem. Um, but um, so when we first started raising the pigs on pasture, I think it was um, one of my mentors, Walter Jeffries from Sugar Mountain Farm, mm -hmm. runs a lot of chickens with his pigs as his pest control. And I thought, well, there's a solution for me. Since I have a hard time keeping chickens cooped up, I am going to just put it out there to the universe that I um, will take anybody's retired chickens and they will be part of my pest control program. And it didn't take long for word to spread in our little town. And so same as you, people can't bear to do away with them or it'll upset the kids or whatever. So um, they show up with their birds in dog crates or in the back of the suburban or <laughs> whatever, whatever they do. And right. I take them and I just let them um, run with the pigs um, and they uh, 
you know, every day they're out there picking through the um, pig poop and um, eating the bugs. Um, they find shelter with the pigs in their shade shelters. And uh, the pigs, um, for the most part, don't even blink an eye at the chickens. If a chicken dies of natural causes, they uh, will eat it, we'll and, it not leave, and not leave one, one remnant. Um, so it's a nice recycling program. Uh, yeah, and you know, if, if they happen to lay the occasional egg, that's a treat for the pigs as well. So it's a nice relationship. That's great. And you know, I've, I have to say, I, I love that you just described that for us in such detail because we've we've done similar and it was really by accident. We were, we were doing some free ranging of our chickens as we we're trying to figure out exactly how we wanted to manage them. Uh, we have a lot of raccoon issues in our area. That's uh, one of our more predominant predators. And of course, they just uh, lay chickens to waste once they once they get started. So uh, as we were free ranging, we we discovered that as the chickens that were smart enough to go hang out with the pigs would um, would not have any issues because the pigs was the, were the buffer for the uh, from the raccoons. Excuse me. <clears throat> and then uh, um, same situation. Uh, everyone kept saying, "Oh, your pigs are going to kill your chickens," and and they were they were they were pretty calm and just let them go. In fact, we would as we would put out feed you know the chicken would be right there beside the pig at the pig pig trough uh eating feed and as long as the chicken didn't get in the way and get accidentally stepped on then uh, then they were fine if they got accidentally stepped on then and 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 were you know in in the throes of death then a, a pig would turn around and take care of them but it was sure. really really interesting and, and and i like your point it's very similar to um uh what we see at uh polyface farms uh, uh joel salatin's farm is just a couple hours right. from us and he, he does the same thing where he rotates his egg layers in behind his cattle as he moves those and it's a mm-hmm. great it's a great setup because as you mentioned they, they they're busting apart the poop they're extracting uh, fly larvae any any insects there spreading that manure out allowing it to uh, disperse throughout the, the the ground a little better and of course you, you, you they, they, they get the opportunity to, to eat and to graze and to do all of that stuff and like as you said with with eggs it's just a bonus after that point yeah yep we also my daughter-in-law also um raises chickens so she's in charge of the laying hens and the meat birds and she runs the meat birds behind my pigs just like it sounds like you just described at joel's place Mm -hmm. um and so they are a little bit more confined but um but we do have this large population of retired chickens that are just wherever they want to (laughs) be yeah great a great accessory to your to your pig herd that's that's excellent Yeah, and that, yeah. that definitely has all kinds of benefits. Okay, so, uh, wow, there's there's all kinds of spokes to this wagon wheel of discussion here. So uh, you <laughs> mentioned Walter Jeffries, which I, I'm, I'm currently communicating with Walter. We're trying to set up a time to get him uh, interviewed. Uh, um, oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I've been following yeah. him for a while on Facebook yeah. and then watching what he does uh, on his uh, website. And, and I hear more and more people drop his name, which is great. So um, tell us just a little bit, without, um, without giving away too much of Walter's secret sauce, because we'll get that from him, but... Uh, tell us from your perspective, how important was it to have a mentor like Walter help you out and, 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 and what kind of uh, guidance did he give? Um, I would say I wouldn't have done what I'm doing now if it hadn't been for the discovery of Walter. Hmm. Um, I The only experience I really had with pigs prior to getting my first breeding pair of Tamworths was um, helping my son raise 4-H pigs years ago. And, you know, that was a very traditional small pen, lots of processed food, get them to wait, you know, by fair time and off they go. Right. And um, I knew I, I didn't want to 
do that again. I knew when I learned that heritage pigs in particular could forage on um, pasture, um, I, I, I felt like that was the way I wanted to go. And then a friend of mine happened to stumble across Walter's website and I just started following him um, and stalking him and, you know, just like getting as much as I could from him. I correspond a little bit with him via email or Facebook, but mostly he's just been so thorough in his blogging and, um, and all of the wonderful information that he's been willing to share on his website that I, um, I just absorbed as much as I could and continue to learn from him. Um, to this day, I'm far from an expert. I've still got a very steep hill to climb, but, uh, but it's just been very educational. It's been very eye-opening to know that, um, you know, uh, it, you can do things um, that are actually a, a more traditional, old-fashioned way of raising pigs. Um, and I, and I, I, as I said, I don't have it figured out by any means, but I have the confidence and the courage um, because of his sharing of his knowledge to try new things and uh, try to branch out and um, be a little unconventional, I guess. Yeah, isn't it isn't it great? I, I think I think I saw a stat the other day that I believe Walter has over a decade worth of blog content on his website. Yeah, just yeah. extremely robust amount of information. Yeah, it's so rich and um, and and it's just so valuable. And I really appreciate that. And I've really, um, as I've learned through trial and error here, um, I've really tried to uh, take his lead in regards to sharing that information. And so um, I, I was just thinking about that today, getting ready for this conversation with you. I do about, oh my gosh, maybe two dozen farm tours a year. And, um, and I, and I try to just share as much of the information that I can with uh, people exploring, uh, raising pigs on pasture. And I'm just really trying to be, uh, you know, generous of spirit the way Walter has been with all of us. So, Yeah, he's very, very approachable. And, and again, I know we don't want to make this podcast all about him, but I, I have been impressed with that uh, even on the Facebook group that he's he's a part of, uh, Pastured Pig, I believe, um, mm-hmm. he's very, very approachable and answers a lot of questions, definitely jumps in. He he seems to, he's, he, I don't think he's a moderator, but he's he's so active on that, always willing to give people insight and advice. It's, it's, yeah. it's really neat to yeah. see somebody uh, share their experience in that way. Yeah, it's great, and he's taught me so much. I'm I'm very grateful for it. So, yeah. Well, excellent. Well, another thing that you said there, and and maybe this ties into some of the influence that Walters had with you. You talked about processing your pigs on farm. Mm-hmm. So uh, so let's let's back the card up a little bit. So if you are processing on farm, are you producing your hogs uh, for commercial sales for uh, private sales? Uh, what are what are you doing to generate revenue with your hogs, or are they just for private consumption? Yeah, great question. Um, so we currently sell our hogs um, as custom exempt pork shares. Uh, so we um, we don't have a, a USDA processing plant within five hours of us. And because um, of my farming philosophies and not wanting to uh, cart live animals that distance, I've focused more on my custom exempt sales. So. Um, in case some of the listeners don't know what that is, I sell um, quarter, half, and whole shares of pigs, and the customer has to buy that buy the animal, you know, quote unquote, live. And my job is to get it slaughtered and to the butcher, and then they pick it up 
from the butcher cut and wrapped in, in tidy little packages. Um, and so to that end, um, we have a couple of options locally in terms of that slaughter, the first phase of that process, which is the slaughter. Um, we have one mobile processor in our county, and then um, we have the um, option of, of doing that slaughtering on farm if we've met the qualifications, the WSDA, Washington State Department of Ag qualifications. So we did that, um, and we did that for a couple of reasons. Uh, mobile slaughters come and go, and they're often booked um, you know, far in advance, and it's hard to get them to come when you need them. Um, we've also had a shortage of butchers uh, since we started this, so that's been a challenge as well, but we can talk about that later. Um, so my, uh, my son um, did an a internship with a local slaughter um, business and learned how to do that for our pigs, and so he and my daughter do that. Uh, they uh, slaughter, and then we do a scald and scrape. We have a scald and scrape machine um, that we got from a, a business that was going out of business. Hmm. So we set all that up here, and uh, yeah, so the pigs um, never leave the farm um, alive. They, they're born here, and they die here, and then we take their car that carcass to the local butcher. It's cut and wrapped for the customer. Okay, so so make sure I'm understanding. So you are uh, you are dispatching on farm. You're scalding and scraping. Are you eviscerating at that time, or are you yep. allowing? Okay, so you take it to the point of evisceration. So you're taking yep. an eviscerated, uh, what would be considered a hanging carcass at that point, to the butcher to go ahead and be broken down based upon your customer specs. That's right. Yep. Awesome. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like that uh, Washington gives you that opportunity to do that. Um, I've, I, I'm with you. I we don't our, our only USDA processor just gave up his certification, so now we are yeah. we are about a four hour to five hour drive uh, to yeah. any USDA uh, processor, and I just I just hate the fact uh, the thought of transporting pigs that far. Now uh, I'm unaware in our state that we have the option that Washington does where I can dispatch on farm, but. Uh -huh. um, Wow, I love that. I love the fact that I love having control. That's always been the, the biggest issue with, with raising hogs is you, you go through all the trouble to care for your hogs, to raise them, to do what you want to do with them, to raise them in the wet manner that you want. And then you have to turn them over to somebody who you're not 100% sure if they appreciate the hog as much as you do when it comes to That's right. dispatching and processing and, and butchering. So. Yeah, wow, yeah it's, that's, been a, that's been a really big deal for me, and um, it's taken – you know, a number of years to figure it out for ourselves, but I'm also part of um, a coalition of um, producers in our valley, or our, our county, rather, and some um, nonprofit conservation districts that we've been working for two years to get a USDA small plant established in our county, um, and uh, it's been quite a process. It's been very educational. We've done a lot of surveys, a lot of outreach, and just really trying to advocate for um, you know, just more access for small producers. And uh, we've been very successful, and that plant is actually opening this fall. Oh, wow. And so that will be 45 minutes from my farm. Um, so, I, so I am looking forward to um, exploring that option. And, and because I've been a part of it from the ground up, I feel confident that my pigs will be well cared for there. But that will open up a whole other marketing venue for me. And... Um, uh, you know, change change my goals for farming and all of that that comes with retail sales, but it's been a long process. 
Yeah, it's, it's great to have options, and it really allows you to be much more flexible, and I think you yeah, have a little bit of a comfort zone, too, when, you're, when you look at uh, the business side of it, that, that know that you've got options there when it comes to finishing your, your uh, product. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, this, this is actually like a podcast in reverse, because we're, we're, we're starting, we're going <laughs> deep into some subjects, and then we're backing up to some of the higher-level stuff. So let's, let's back up again, and let's talk about your breed of choice and mm-hmm. roughly how many uh, how many hogs you have that you finish on an annual basis uh, just kind of give us a little uh, tour there yeah yeah so i um after a lot of research and um uh you know looking at what i had for um forage options and what my um climate could support i landed on the tamworth pig and I found my first breeding pair um, came from a farm in the Spokane area, which is about three hours from me. Um, so uh, that's the animal I've been raising, and I do um, farrow to finish. Uh, my peak production has been about 80 pigs a year, hmm. uh, but as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we've had um, a go-around with butchers. We had um, a butcher retire. We had one of get run out of town. <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> that happens at times. <laughs> Various things have occurred. Um, so the the butchering options have been a little, um, you know, a little bit of a roller coaster. But uh, so I've, I'm currently just at 30 pigs, but we have a new butcher who's doing a fantastic job. And then we have the um, potential for the USDA plant. So I'm slowly rebuilding my herd and I'll probably get up to 80 to 100 by this time next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's fun, and I uh, currently have uh, pigs ranging from two months to nine years. My first pig is nine years old, and she's our forever pig. We've decided we're just going to let her die a natural death, and uh, she serves as our grandmother and mentor, and yeah. uh, she's just a wonderful spirit. So that's why I have a nine-year-old pig. Excellent. But, she's earned um, her keep. She's earned her keep, yep. Yeah. Um, so so mostly I have Tamworth. Um, I... I um, have been playing with uh, the pig's um, diet for um, quite a few years, and uh, at one point I um, felt like the pigs were too lean for um, most of my customers' taste, and so I brought in um, a large black and uh, introduced that cross, um, the large black and tam cross, to try to get a little more natural um, fat on the carcass. But um, I've made some other adjustments that we can talk about here in a little bit. Um, so at this point, I'm phasing those large blacks out, and I'll just stick with the Tamworths. Hmm. Okay. So out of those, uh, so you said right now you have about 30 um, on yep. farm, and you, you've gone as high as 80. Are you mm-hmm. are you taking all those to finish? Are you selling some of those as growers for other people? How, do, how does that normally parse out? I typically take all of those to finish, although um, the last two years I've sold about um, 10 piglets uh, to a 4-H group over in the Seattle area. Their um, county fair has a heritage pig class and so the Tamworths have been doing quite well over there. They're actually, they've actually been grand champions, which I just learned um, when they came to pick up their second batch this year. Um, but typically, I am not selling piglets to um, anyone locally. I'm just um, raising them to butcher weight myself. Okay. So your customer base is it um, is it, uh, is it all primary sales? Do you have any wholesale? Are you doing anything with restaurants? Any distri- distribution there? 
No, I'm, it's all custom exempt because I don't have any USDA. Gotcha. Okay. So that's so going to keep you in that all realm. Private. Yep. It's all private. And for the most part, it's within my own community, but I do have a small um, growing customer base um, from the Seattle area as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great to move uh, mm-hmm. to move as many as eighty pigs with uh, with private sales. That's that's a good customer base. Good. Uh, yeah. Assume you have good communication uh, practices with that uh, customer base. It sounds like. I try. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you don't mind, let's segue over. I was looking at your website, and, and something mm-hmm. jumped out at me was uh, was your section on fodder. Would you care to uh, enlighten us on what you've got going on there? Sure. Sure. So the fodder came about um, out of my desire to be um, grain free. It's um, where I live is very isolated. Um, and uh, and so buying um, a complete hog feed is um, pretty cost prohibitive and people do it. But in order to keep the um, end cost of my pigs um, at a reasonable rate for my customers. I just felt like there, there, I needed to explore some other ways. And, uh, and I knew Walter was doing it, and I thought if Walter can do it, I'm going to find a way to do it. So, um, so for a few years, I focused just on my pasture and um, supplementing with um, apples and um, whatever else I could bring in. Um, and that was less than ideal. I would say... Um, um, the the pigs were just far too lean. They they would get to weight, but it took more like it took about sixteen months, and hmm. um, yeah, they just weren't the best quality. So I did some research on fodder, and in twenty sixteen, I had the opportunity to write a grant proposal to um, an organization called Human Links Foundation and the Washington Tilth Alliance that supports small farmers. Um, and their efforts to be sustainable. And um, I was fortunate enough to get that grant, which enabled me to purchase um, a fodder growing system. So that consisted of some um, metal rack, uh, some metal racking and um, channels to grow fodder and some lighting and that sort of thing. And so since 2016, I've been tinkering with that system and um, I, uh, have had some success and I now grow about 200 pounds of water a day. I use uh, barley seed and water so it's a hydroponic setup uh, and I aim to feed the pigs about a pound of water per 100 pounds of pig weight. Hmm, wow. Um, right. Yeah. And so that addition of water um, plus the free choice apples that they get and um, in the winter, I feed alfalfa and oat hay. Uh, has improved the carcasses by, I would say, 80%. Um, I now get to wait in about 10 months, and uh, they have a beautiful fat cap, and there's nice marbling, and they're just in super great health. And uh, and I've managed to keep my feed costs down. So. Wow. So you've gone. So again, if I'm hearing you correctly, so you went from finishing around 16 months to implementing this fodder system, and now you're finishing around 10 months. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and the quality then they they just look fantastic. Um and and again, my my goal, my bottom line was to try to keep my um cost down so that I could pass that savings on to my customers and I've been able to do that. So and it's also, you know, additionally, it's easier for me to source barley seed than it is for me to source a complete 
aggression. Yeah. Well, have you, have you noticed that? Does that show up? Does it manifest in uh, the finished product? Have you heard? Have you tried it? Is, is it different? Is it, does it have some uh, flavor benefit from it? I don't necessarily notice um, a difference in flavor other than there's just um, there's more there's better marbling and mm-hmm. there's you know there's a little bit more fat so I would say all in all just the the quality at the end when you've finished cooking a piece of meat um, it's more moist yeah. you know it, it tastes a little richer because of that moisture Excellent. Um, and the customer feedback has been excellent, so that always helps too. Yeah, that's that's always the right. trick. Here, customer yep. doesn't like it; they'll let you know usually. So. That's right. <laughs> they will certainly let you know. That's right. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take this time to point out that um, on your website, the Wild Plum Farm, you have a section on fodder, and, and you have some pretty good detail there that you go through, even some step-by-step mm-hmm. points, uh, as well as your pictures. So, uh, looking at that setup on, on the pictures, and for those of you listening, um, obviously this is the part where podcasts break down as just audio, uh, but if you get a chance to go to her website and check that out, it, it takes a bit of space there. So, are you utilizing your large barn? Do you have a specific area that you've built to, to house your fodder system? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think that's one of the challenges that a lot of people wanting to grow fodder um, face. It's like, where where will you house that? Um, I, I took over my garage. <laughs> um, I had a heated garage that um, I just kicked everything else out and uh, and moved my fodder system in. It does require, um, in the winter, it requires heat. In the summer, it requires um, really good ventilation. Um, uh, because if you if your humidity level and your temperatures get wonky, you you end up growing a lot of mold, mm. um, and we all know that that's not good for our pigs. Mm. So uh, yeah, so there's a little bit of tinkering that goes on, and I think I talked a little bit about that on the website. But um, it 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 you know I can't grow it in the barn because I don't have a space um, that's insulated and heated. Um, with the water drainage, but the garage is working great, and my car has survived just fine outside. Well, I was going to say, do you, do you find that in mid-January you regret this decision at any time? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm scraping the two feet of snow off my windshield. Like, right. Sorry, it's not in the garage, but no, it's fine because it's made, it, it's actually, it's really fun to do, and uh, and it's made such a difference in my farming practices that I'm just really excited that I have the opportunity to do it, so. Well, let's talk about scalability with that. So, uh, from at thirty hogs right now, when you get back up to eighty, how mm-hmm. much uh, effort is that into to scaling that up? What are we looking at? Is there additional investment, or is it just just more trays? It's more trays, and I think at this point, um, and I talk about this a little bit on the website. I would not put the money into a commercial setup again, um, and I've actually modified my commercial setup significantly. So, um, I, I would be able to um, create my own racking with, um, you know, two by fours and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, um, there are ways for me to uh, spread that fodder around more um, specifically. So if I, um, if I get back up to 80 hogs, I'll focus the fodder on my, um, my growers and I will not worry so much about my breeding stock who um, maintain their condition much better on um, the pasture and the hay that I supply and the apples in their diet. Um, and, you know, so I, I wouldn't necessarily need to um, grow that much more per day hmm. if I focused. Right now, everybody gets it because I can do that. But 
you yeah. wouldn't have to early. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm sorry if you've mentioned this and I, and I just miss it, but as far as the apples go, where are you sourcing those? Is that something you're purchasing? Are you getting overrun from some, some other location? Yeah. So I don't know if you know this about Washington State, but it's known as the apple capital of the world. <laughs> they do grow some apples out there, yes. <laughs> and so because of that, there are lots of um, apple packing sheds and warehouses that are overflowing with apples that are deemed, you know, um, not fit for human consumption. Oh, okay. And so uh, those are, they're just known as um, waste apples. And anybody who shows up with a trailer can get a trailer full of apples free. So we make a um, trip once a week to our local packing shed and come home with about six tons of apples. Wow. That's and a lot of apples. <laughs> yeah. It, it is a dream come true. I didn't, I didn't know about this until about two years ago, and somebody clued me in, and, uh, and it's pretty incredible. So how how does that keep? So when you get six ton, obviously I assume that's not uh, that's not fed out all at once. You you've stored that. How how does that keep? Well, in the hot summer months, I, it gets pretty gross actually, mm -hmm. and so I do just try to dump it all into the um, various pastures where the pigs are. I have three different groups of pigs, and so I will um, feed it all out at once. Otherwise, mm. it's actually a little dangerous for me to deal with it because it draws yellow jackets. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Insects yeah. That, um, that I tend to react poorly to. So um, so I try to feed this all out. But this time of year and, and in the winter, I'll, you know, I'll just give everybody a scoop or two uh, um, off the tractor and I'll spread it out over the week. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, pigs are... I'm sure you know this with your own pigs, but they are, they're so smart about their eating. And, you know, if you did that to a herd of horses, they'd, they'd oh, yeah. gorge and colic and kill themselves. Exactly. And pigs are just very, very smart about how much they eat and when they eat and what they eat. So, they are. They know when to walk away from the table. That's, that's interesting. They do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So have you found, and again, this is my twisted logic i guess but in my mind i think have you, have you run into where any of your apple piles in the in the dead of summer have fermented have you have you, have you experienced that <laughs> i have and you know they start to smell yeah that's like the main <laughs> odor on our farm is the um, fermenting apple piles but um and you know if they get too gross the pigs just work them into the ground and right. they don't eat those last yeah. bits but yeah oh, but what a great option yeah. with getting them cleaned up yeah, you know, and that's and that's interesting. I, I love as people raise pigs on pasture in different areas, different regions of the country. Uh, you you find out what what's extra, what's the commodity around. And here, obviously, we don't have as much apples, but um, I've got uh, out of a hundred acres, I have ninety acres of Appalachian hardwood forest. So in the fall, we've got acorns, we've got hickory, we've got walnuts, we've got beech nuts. I mean, we have um, protein fallen literally falling out of the sky on a regular basis so my feed yeah. costs uh, drop dramatically in the fall and right. uh, and then you, you you hear people say well yeah, the apples and then uh, brewers grain and all these type of things it's just really neat yeah. to, to see regionally how people deal with uh, other people's surpluses it is well and i went through three years of collecting brewers grain from our local brew pub and um and I thought that was great, but then I brought on the fodder, and I realized fodder was much more bang for my buck, and uh, so I've actually given up the uh, brewer's grain account, and I just focus on growing green grass instead. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, 
What other insight do you have for us, Deb? There's, uh, I've, I've kind of gone through my question list here, but I feel like there's there's plenty more to talk to you about. Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about, well, I, it might be interesting to your listeners to know that um, most of my pastures are just a simple two strands of electric fence. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's, that is, you know, simple fencing, which is always nice. Um, I do have um, dedicated winter paddocks for my pigs because of our snow load here. Mm. Uh, the electric fences get buried pretty quickly. So I have created um, three places that I bring my herds into for the winter with um, that are um, fully fenced with the hog panel, you know, the mm -hmm. four or five foot tall hog panels. And they have their three-sided shelters there. Um, and I've learned from Walter again that uh, if I fill those shelters in the fall with... Um, fresh wood chips and um, feed them their hay on there for a while. They get a nice, thick bedding that um, heats up and gets us through some very cold winter weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they winter over really well, and uh, that's always good to see. Um, so you, you mentioned you mentioned your farrowing. So do you find with with your with your seasonal issues? Do you farrow only certain times a year, or do you go all all year farrowing? I have landed on just farrowing in the spring and the fall. Mm. Um, my first couple of years, I winter farrowed, and um, quickly realized that unless I have a, a larger demand for pigs, I do not need to be farrowing in the winter. Mm. Uh, it was very hard, and it's it gets you know it gets quite cold here so um so i avoid that hassle if i can okay um and yeah now do you ask well this is you know some of those questions that it's unfortunately become more controversial but what about uh do you use any farrowing crates and do you castrate great questions i do not use farrowing crates uh in the winter i have my breeders in a paddock that has a three-sided um, a large three-sided uh, barn where I can create um, smaller paddocks in it using uh, wood pallets. Mm -hmm. And so I will do that for them, and, and they'll farrow in there, and they're like probably 20 feet by 20 feet each area. And I separate them out for that farrowing because there's usually still a couple feet of snow on the ground in um, late spring, early, you know, like late March, early April. Mm -hmm. And so for them to go find a comfortable place out in the pasture is not feasible. Gotcha. Um, so I give them a little um, private, you know, birthing suite and, and that seems to work great. Um, in the fall, fall farrowing, uh, they'll just farrow out in the field and um, have the freedom to choose where they want to do that. And, um, and that usually goes just fine. Um, I have started castrating. I did not castrate for the first four years of raising the pigs. I was, um, I firmly believe in, um, in the ability to um, manage taint with uh, breeding and with diet, and I had a lot of success with that. Hmm. I've decided to castrate because of um, management issues, um, because it's taking me. 10 months to um, get my pigs to butcher weight um, it's they can't all be kept together yeah because they <laughs> get a little rambunctious youngsters running around there ready to, exactly. uh, to populate <laughs> exactly and you know for the first four years I um, 
I kept everybody separate and it was fine, but it was a lot of extra hassle and um, resources to manage that safely for everybody. Um, and, uh, and I've also found that it's a bit of a PR issue with customers. Um, they, there's a lot of assumption that if I'm giving them a uncut mail that it's not going to taste good. Right. So there's a whole education piece that I found with my customer base that, um, that took a lot of energy and, uh, and I, I haven't completely ruled it out in the future because I, I believe that it's possible to, um, do it without castration. But at this point I, I needed to check some things. I needed to eliminate some, you know, some of the, um, time consuming tasks and, and focus on some other things for now. So, yeah, yeah. So and that whole that whole subject, as you mentioned, that whole subject of Bortine is is very controversial, even among uh, among uh, those of us that raise pigs. And uh, yeah. and I appreciate Walter's stance on that. I, I think he he's leaning maybe even where your influence uh, came from originally with his yeah. uh, uh, desire to not castrate and and, and mm-hmm. being choosing and uh, with the breeding options and with feed and some other um, practices there, being able to maintain that. And, um, yeah, even, even if he's 100% successful, like you said, the educational side of that for the customers, uh, uh, it's, you'll find that some of our customers are, are just, uh, just know enough about uh, pig management to, to know what Bortain is, and then, yeah. uh, but not know enough about uh, the, the breeding it out and, and some of the selectivity there. So it, it definitely becomes a, a PR nightmare at times. It does. It does. And, and uh, like I said, I needed to simplify a few things. And so that was one of the ways that I could do that. So we've taught ourselves how to do it on farm. And, um, and we found that if we castrate um, at the end of the first week, so between seven and 10 days, that we have um, the least negative impact. And oh, I did want to share with you and your listeners something that um, I see um, on the face, some of the Facebook groups, people are always asking about castration, and uh, and it, and in you know, in educating myself, I learned that oftentimes it's recommended that you, you know, you, after castration, that you spray with blue coat or you right. put some iodine on the on the incisions. Well, I had an old time uh, pig farmer come and teach me how to do it, and he showed up with a quart jar of pine tar. Oh no, kidding! And 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 he said, "This is what we're going to put on this pig." And and there's two reasons: one, because it's an antiseptic; it's a natural antiseptic; and two, because it doesn't sting. And so you put it on the incision, and you put the pig down, and the pig doesn't scoot its butt mm-hmm. along in the dirt because it doesn't hurt. Yeah, that's interesting because a, a, a similar story, obviously different direction, but similar story. A, 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 an old timer. Uh, as, as he wouldn't mind me calling him, uh, same thing. He said we're we're not going to spray any uh, anything after the fact because of the stinging. And the mm-hmm. same thing, a, a pig will go over there, and the first thing he'll do is drag his rear end across the dirt. So yeah. we would always you know clean, and we use iodine. We do a lot of cleaning prior to the incisions, so we mm-hmm. had the cleanest possible area there, and then make the incisions, and of course just just let him go about his day. But that's interesting. So that so they would uh, so you all would apply uh, pine tar after the incision. Yep. yep. Yeah, we just, you know, it's that's it's so gooey and sticky, but we just, um, you know, use a little scrap of wood and we just um, smear it on there and then we send them on their way. And they're, you know, after that initial trauma of the, you know, removing their testicles is over, um, they seem to be fine. 
and we've, um, we haven't had any infections. We haven't had any, um, you know, secondary issues at all. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, we, we, we castrate the same amount of time. Usually, I try to castrate around day seven, uh, no mm-hmm. later than day ten. And, and, and same, same situation, just you find that, that at that age, a piglet, A, is, is much easier to handle, easier to manage, mm-hmm. uh, but B, just seems to recover so quickly. I mean, I, we, yeah. we put them on the ground, and yeah, they take off running, and uh, yeah. Yeah, within no time, there's, there's no blood loss. You get great scabbing. Uh, usually within the next, uh, the next day, there's, there's really good scabs intact. And, and, um, out of experience, I've been convinced that, uh, yeah. that the, the old fellows know what they're talking about. Right. I know. I know. It's, it's nice when they pass their knowledge along to us. I really appreciate it. It is. You know, you <laughs> yeah. said something there, and again, I, I, I know we're going a little long here, but I enjoy talking with you about this. You, you said something earlier about old-timey practices in raising pigs, and it, it's almost like that's a, that's a bell curve because we find that the further you go back and look at how people raise pigs back in the day, then they're more congruent with how uh, we want to raise hogs on pasture. But then there's kind of that group in between, I would say my grandfather's generation or even my dad's generation, where uh, confinement raising was just starting to come about. And uh, and you, you find when you run into some of these guys, I'll never forget when I first started raising hogs, my neighbor came over the mountain because everything in West Virginia mountains, you always come over the mountain to somebody else's place. <laughs> so he came over the mountain and, 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 uh, and uh, I know I try to keep this kid friendly, but the first thing he said is, I smell pig shit. So I had to come see what was going on. And he couldn't believe that somebody was raising hogs in the valley because no, nobody had raised hogs in, in the valley in decades. And uh, so he comes over and, and starts talking, and, and the first thing he says, he just looks at me and laughs. He said, boy, he said, you got to get those pigs up on off the ground. He said, uh, you'll never put on weight if they run around like that. And uh, <laughs> we became really good friends. Unfortunately, he passed away of stomach cancer two years ago, but we became really good friends and learned a lot from him. But it was, it was interesting to see there there's certain practices that we just didn't agree on. Uh, yeah. he, I'd give him uh, piglets to raise because he'd, he'd help me. So I'd give him a couple to finish out. Well, he'd put them in a confinement area off the ground. They, they never touched dirt. They were in a you know, 10 by 10 area. He fed them, watered them, and then it was time to process them. He took them out, and he said, yeah, my pigs are going to be much bigger than yours. They're going to taste better. And I said, well, you know, Charlie, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that. But, but it's really interesting <laughs> to see, and I, and I love. There's, even, even when you don't necessarily agree with somebody's practices, you can still learn a lot from people. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, everybody just needs to keep an open mind, and it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, do everything they tell you to do, but chances are you're going to learn something from each other along the way. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, tell you what, and I have to twist my back around here to see if I can find my okay. last question there. Okay. Um, so I like to try to close out each podcast uh, with this uh, kind of a closing question. So, Deb, what is your best experience or favorite part of raising pigs on pasture? Great question. Um, can I answer it in two parts? Sure. I, okay. won't, I won't charge you extra for that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I would say um, one of my favorite uh, experiences with raising pigs on pasture is having the opportunity to give uh, farm tours. And uh, those tours are mostly for school kids, but every once in a while I'll have an adult group come through as well. And it's just a wonderful time for me to um, 
to see the rewards of the hard work and the passion and the persistence that I've put into this farming pro this farming endeavor. Um, and I, you know, of course the kids love seeing the pigs and they love meeting Johnson the donkey and, and they, um, you know, get a kick out of watching the chickens run around and all that's um, great. But, but most importantly, it's when they have this aha moment and they realize that the pigs are out grazing in these fields and they never thought they'd ever see a pig grazing in a field. And then they have this aha moment that there's no pig stink, that nothing smells badly. Mm. Um, and then ultimately they just really love the taste of the bacon and the sausage exactly. that they get at the end of the tour. Um, and that just, that just tickles <laughs> my, tickles me. And I just, I, I love being able to show them the, the full cycle there and, um, you know, and, and uh, have that appreciation for the hard work. Um, so that's one. And then I think the other, another favorite experience um, that I have with this work is just um, having the daily um, contact with the land and the animals. Um, that really keeps me grounded and it keeps me connected to the values that I hold dear. Hmm. Um, people often ask me if I miss working in. Uh, education and social work which was my life before farming mm -hmm. and um you know they ask me if i miss having a quote real job <laughs> and uh and i pretty emphatically respond that i love my job and i love growing food for people most importantly though i love knowing that i've provided the best life possible for the animals that i raise and uh and that they um that they are happy from start to finish. Excellent. Yeah, I love that uh, that real job comment. It's uh, you know, I always want to ask you define what a real job is actually, because I'd, right. I'd love to know. I'm 46 years old, and I don't know that I've ever had a real job. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Well, that's great. I love I love. Well, it sounds like obviously you know, you know, education and social work. You're you know, you're you're, you're do obviously doing the education element right now with your farm tours. So I, I wouldn't say you've stepped too far away from that at all. Well, I know, and that's what I love about that, too. Yeah, I've definitely been able to keep, you know, in touch with that part of my um, real job experience. Yeah, <laughs> just change the scenery a little bit, yeah. That's right, that's right. And I love, I love the ending the tours with bacon and sausage. Nothing says indoctrination like ending anything with bacon and sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, it's Deb, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I I definitely appreciate your time and 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 really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, how can people find out more about your farm operation? Yeah, well, I have a website, um, and that is www.thewildplumfarm.com. I'm also on Instagram. I try to do a lot of um, social networking to keep people informed, and my Instagram is wildplumfarm. Uh, and then I'm on Facebook just under my name. So, uh, and I'm part of a lot of the um, Facebook, you know, pastured pigs and Western states pigs and all of those groups. So I try to stay connected with people there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, great opportunities for people to reach out and, and to see what you've got going on there. And I'm sure uh, you'll be more than happy to answer any questions that, uh, that our audience may have for you. Yeah, you bet. Well, I'll, I'll post uh, the links to her website in our uh, in our show description there, so everyone can find that, and they can obviously check her out on her social media. Well, Deb, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and uh, pray you have a good evening. 
Thank you so much, Troy. It's been great talking with you as well. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, take care. Well, I really appreciate Deb coming on the podcast and taking the time to talk with me. Uh, really, a lot of neat stuff there. And I encourage you to check out her website. And as she mentions, it, it's thewildplumfarm.com. Or you can find her on Instagram at wildplumfarm. Or uh, uh, I believe her name is how you find her on Facebook, Deb Jones Schuler. if you want to follow her there. Uh, so, yeah, just check out what she's got going on. Uh, again, a lot of a lot of neat stuff that we could dive in deeper. I may, may even have to get her back on where we talk specifically about her fodder system or, or some other things she's got going on there. Well, if you like this podcast, please uh, consider giving us a rating and a review on whatever feed device you're using. Um, Feel free to email me with any type of input, any discussions, any concerns, uh, future topics or guests, or if you want to be a guest, you can email me at troy at redtoolhouse.com. You can go to our website, redtoolhouse.com, click on the Pastured Pig podcast link and use our form there if you'd rather do that to uh, submit topic information. Uh, If you want to learn more about Red Toolhouse, you can check out our YouTube channel at Red Toolhouse Homestead on YouTube. Or visit redtoolhouse.com to see our website. Or you can find us on Facebook at Red Tool House Farm. All right, again, appreciate everybody uh, taking the time to listen. Hope you have a great week. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com. 